Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Credit Suisse is in the news. Are we facing another Lehman Brothers moment? Is the banking system about to implode again? Is it going to cause another financial crisis? Who better to ask than a former banker? I'm joined by Rob Master and to discuss Credit Suisse and what makes banks so inherently dangerous. Now, this is a pretty tough topic, to be honest. You might sort of only find this a, a, an introduction, a, a sort of opportunity to get interested in a topic that's going to take a while to figure out. So, Rob, I think that's all we should aim for is to really pique people's interest. And, and now's a good time because it's affecting financial markets. Can you tell us what's going on with Credit Suisse? Yeah. Hi, Nick. Um, thanks for introducing me as an, as an, an ex-banker. I put my hands up. I'll admit Reformed that. Reformed I'm not one of the bad guys. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, look, there's, there's been a lot of uh, stuff going around uh, with all the turmoil in the markets generally around the world. There's been a lot of um, news going around that is, are we going to have another repeat of the global financial crisis when all the big banks got into big trouble? Um, now, I don't think that's going to happen personally, um, but we can come on to that. In terms of um, Credit Suisse itself, this is a, a bank. It's the second largest Swiss bank. It has big operations around the world, including a big investment banking division. And it was one of the banks that was always quite... Um, I always felt that when, when I worked in the industry, I worked for its its bigger competitor, UBS, by the way, the big Swiss bank. And it was we, we all sort of felt that it was it was uh, it had a sort of more relaxed attitude to risk, shall we say, than um, some of the other banks. Um, and also it was a bank that after the global financial crisis, when most of the other big investment banks um, reduced their risk and reduced dramatically how much they had on their own balance sheets in terms of securities and, and derivatives and the risks they're taking in the markets. Most of the banks dramatically reduced that, including the big American names like Goldman Sachs and so forth. But Credit Suisse was one of those that was very, very slow to do that uh, and didn't adjust. And it's been very, very late in the game to really reforming the structure of its business in the way that most of its competitors did after the global financial crisis. And in the last few years, it's had a series of major slip-ups, which have cost it, I think, billions of, of dollars in fines and or just straight old losses to its profit and loss account um, from its interactions with big hedge funds that have gone bust. And uh, it was even involved in, um, I think, lending to uh, Greensill Capital, which I believe our ex-Prime Minister David Cameron was, was uh, somehow involved with as a consultant. It, it makes me laugh because I remember... Being in a Credit Suisse job interview in 2009, and one of the things I said was that Credit Suisse was one of the very few investment banks that was not front page news during the financial crisis, whereas UBS very much was. So I'm surprised to hear you say that they were that they were considered to be one of the more risky banks. Well, uh, UBS certainly got in trouble, um, as did most of the banks. It was all right, always our suspicion. I'm not going to name names, um, but there were some other banks out there that didn't get into public trouble. And I have to say, uh, it was a strong feeling amongst a lot of people in the industry that there might have been some interesting cre creativity going on with the bookkeeping, shall we say, in some of these places. Um, and uh, well, um, those those banks clearly didn't appear in the in the media uh, as much as others. Now, you said that the, um, one of the, the things that played out here is that, well, 
let's take a step back. You said that, that you don't expect Credit Suisse to default. And yet the market is, was not saying otherwise, but the market is getting quite worried, right? Well, uh, Credit Suisse is one bank that has just been standing on lots and lots of banana skins for the last few years. It just keeps, you know, repeatedly having bad news. They, I think they also, they lost a, they lost a chief executive because they were implicated in a spying scandal where they were, you know, sending people to watch uh, the head, their ex-head of private banking who just moved to the competition and, and all sorts of stuff was going on. It's just been a complete shambles in terms of the, the um, management. Oh, yes, and that's right. They appointed a new chairman to calm things down and he had to resign because he'd broken the COVID uh, rules during all the lockdowns and things in Switzerland. So he had to go too after a short period. So it's just been banana skin after banana skin. But just stepping back a bit and looking at the industry, after the global financial crisis, which sort of started in late 06, early 07, and ran through into 09, 2010, when a lot of the banks did get in trouble, things have changed dramatically since then. So, um, you know, a big global bank might have been leveraged by 50 times. Let me just explain what that means. So a bank has, let's, let's describe a very simple bank. Now, actual banks are a bit more complicated, but let's describe a simple bank. So banks have assets. Those assets include loans that they make to customers. So when, when you go to a bank and you borrow money to buy a house or a car or whatever, the bank lends you the money, that is a bank asset. That's something you owe to the bank and therefore it's their asset. On the other side, their main liabilities are bank deposits. So you put money into your bank account, you have a cash deposit, that's money they owe to you. It's your asset, their liability. So assets are loans, liabilities are deposits. Now, there are other things too, on the asset side especially, there are securities uh, positions, such as bonds or, or um, um, equity, stocks and shares. And there are reserve deposits the banks have at central banks, and there's a lot of other things in there. And on the liability side, sometimes there's other borrowing, there's also other derivative positions. But basically, if you take the assets and you subtract the liabilities, what you're left with is equity or net assets. And that's essentially... I'm simplifying, but that's essentially the capital of the bank. The value of the bank. Well, it, yes, it, it's it's sort of the cushion against loss, if you like, but also it's used, there are strict rules around the relationship between assets and the type of assets and the amount of capital, that net asset level, that equity that the banks have to hold. And the reason for that is, is you know, banks create money. So when you go and get a loan, uh, they're creating brand new money out of thin air. They simultaneously create a loan asset. So they lend you some money and you owe it back to them. That's their asset. And they deposit that money into, into a bank account, your bank account, which creates an extra liability, which increases the size of both the assets and the liabilities. Strict regulations exist to prevent that getting out of control. So they have to maintain the sort of limits of place on how much they can become leveraged in that way. And that's the relationship between the assets and that equity capital. And after the GFC, jumping back, those rules became much, much, much stricter. So a bank that typically might have been leveraged by 50 times, meaning its assets were 50 times as big as its equity cushion, maybe now would be on 15 to 20. So they're dramatically deleveraged. So they're safer in that sense. Now, uh, actually, in theory, even if a bank got into trouble and lost a lot on its asset side, and all that equity got wiped out. In theory, the bank can keep functioning. 
but there tends to be a loss of confidence at that point. And if there's a loss of confidence in banks, what do you get? Well, you get a good old fashioned bank run. So everyone turns up at the door and demands their money back. So this is the other side of the coin. Well, let me come on to that in a second. That's that's the liquidity side. But the, the solvency side, the, the, the point about how much equity capital they've got relative to their assets, I think is basically solved. I don't, I think it's highly unlikely. It's not impossible. But I think it's highly unlikely, certainly relative to pre-GFC days, that a lot of these big banks get into a problem where they wipe out their capital and have to be bailed out as they were before. And there are two reasons for that are what I've explained already, which is that they're much less leveraged. They have much stricter rules on them imposed by the regulatory authorities. But the second thing is that they're simply not taking as much risk as they used to. I mean, they, they just don't. The, the, the investment banking wings of these big global organizations, generally speaking, have got rid of so much risk, much, much less risk than before. Now, there might be one or two exceptions. There might be people, you know, being a bit creative. There might be some hidden bombs, you know, off balance sheet. We don't know that. But all I'd say is they're much, much safer than they used to be. So I'm not that worried about that side. Liquidity side, switching to that, if there's a bank run, if there's a, a loss of confidence, everyone turns up demanding their money or even these days turns up online to try and extract money to another bank. Um, there are also a lot stricter rules on liquidity reserves. So this is the, the, the sort of assets that, that the banks hold that they can immediately almost convert into repayments to their to their cash depositors so they're their own um balances that they hold at the central banks or they're things like very short dated uh gilt uk government uh, bonds or us treasury um, bills which are also very short dated uh, government bonds effectively that, it, that operate in very very liquid markets and they can they can sell them at the you know click their fingers they can sell them they've got cash they can pay that back to their depositors and the rules around that, that they have to carry very, very fat liquidity cushions these days in case there is a bank run. I, I forget the exact numbers, but it's sort of enough to cover them for, say, a month or two in uh, a, a real panic situation where maybe they, you know, something like 20% of their deposits get, get pulled out overnight. Um, and then anyway, even if that runs out, the central banks just do what they did in the global financial crisis in, is they pump in more liquidity. They basically lend a ton of money to, to those banks to cover those withdrawals. So I'm not actually that worried about the, the banking system. That doesn't mean that there might not be one or two banks that, that get in trouble. And of course, we're heading into a recession, which does mean that uh, the banks are pretty highly likely to take some big hits and there might be some losses in their profit and loss account. Doesn't mean the banks themselves are actually in trouble. I think that's a really good explanation of, of that two sides of, of bank financial management, the liquidity side and the solvency side. But just I want to mention that the market is is perceiving quite a risk of uh, credit default at uh, Credit Suisse because its credit default swaps are on the move, signaling that there's a high probability of a default of Credit Suisse on its borrowings. And that's supposedly one of the issues for the stock market at the moment, that another bank might fail. Um, and, and this is a, a sign that the market is pricing in a high likelihood of that. But what I want to turn to next is, um, is an underlying issue here behind what banking really is as a business. It's even more fundamental than what you just explained. If, if I were to deposit some furniture at a, at a furniture, at a, at a, sorry, at a storage depository, um, you know, it's, it's winter, so you deposit your garden furniture at a storage facility. The storage facility can't then go and loan out 
that furniture to someone else and earning, you know, earn a fee for, for the rental of it. But that's what banks do, right? You deposit money, which you can take out of the bank at any given time, and the bank goes and lends it to someone else, which means that if everybody showed up at the bank, they wouldn't have the money. Isn't that fraud? <laughs> well, I mean, stepping right back. So yes, when you if you take a big handful of cash notes and pass them over the counter to the cashier in the bank, they don't put it in a box with the name, you know, Nick Hubble written on it. That's not how it works. It just goes into the general, you know, assets of the bank and what they owe to you. Um, of course, most money these days is just electronic. I mean, it, it exists as a, a something registered in the electronic ledgers, the accounting ledgers of a bank. That's just the way the system works. The physical cash in circulation is quite a small proportion of the overall money within the economy. I mean, actually, they don't take your money and lend it to someone else. It works the other way around. They create money when they create a loan, when they lend money to someone else. And that, in turn, creates new electronic money in their ledger in the deposit side. So you get you get the loan asset, as I explained, and the deposit liability. But then that money, once created in, in that deposit account, <clears throat> excuse me, can then flow through the banking system to other customers within the same bank or to other banks within the system. And But the, what the banks do have to do is maintain their funding to their liability side versus their assets. So they have to make sure they keep enough of those deposit liabilities that are funding them, the money lent to them, if you like. And the way they do that is uh, due to supply and demand in a, in a market um, and if they need more, they have to jack up their deposit rates. And if they've got too much, they can pay you lower deposit rates and the money, you know, effectively they're encouraging you to take the money elsewhere. But most people don't. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a fraud in, the in that sense, but it is a bit sort of esoteric and, esoteric and weird the way it all sort of works and how they can just create money out of nothing and how um, the money flows around and how they have to bid for it effectively to stay funded. Um, of course, if you step back to the the very origins of banking, would be people that sort of looked after gold coins for people, put it in a safety deposit box, but then they'd start lending out uh, in turn in return for a sort of piece of paper that was a claim on that, and they'd start lending it out. But we're a long way from um, from those kind of physical gold, well, let alone physical paper uh, days for most of the way that this stuff works. It, it's it's not electronic. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's a I wouldn't say it's a fraud, but I would say it's slightly odd and weird and and difficult for, for people that aren't used to it. It's it's kind of difficult to get your head around it. Um, I mean, it, it makes me laugh a little bit. Um, you know, when when people talk about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and it's like an electronic currency and it's electronic ledgers and this and that and the other, as if it's something new. Well, it's not something new. I mean, all pretty much all all money is electronic already. It's just it's just uh, recorded in a different way. And the recording system is the banking system. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that banks are safer because they've got these larger capital buffers and they've got larger liquidity buffers. They've got more things they can sell quickly for cash should they need the cash. And they've got more things that are less likely to fall in price, which makes the whole situation less risky. However, the particular thing that they tended to own more of when you say they de-risk is government bonds which is precisely the asset that has absolutely crashed this year. So hasn't the whole de-risking of banks really increased risk in much the same way 
that banks de-risked by owning lots of AAA-rated subprime CDOs in 2007. Yeah, well, actually, you raise a very good point. You've got me thinking now about um, Europe and the Eurozone specifically. But um, look, the, the, the bonds they tend to own, well, there's two things. The bonds they tend to own uh, are usually very short-term, which means the price fluctuation, they're, they're short maturity. The price, price fluctuations on those are very, very small, typically not like a 30-year bond, which can move dramatically. And we've seen crashes in, for example, the long-dated gilt market and the US Treasury market uh, over the last uh, year and a bit. Um, so there's that side. Uh, however, I mean, you do you do um, prompt me to think a little bit about the, the Eurozone. So if we were to get a large country that eventually, because of the political deterioration and some sort of financial crisis, and their massive government debts ended up leaving the euro, re-denominating their currency to something else, and then devaluing sharply. Uh, if if they had a lot of bonds in those banks that were issued by that government, that suddenly went from being euros to something else, lira, drachma, whatever, and were devalued, then that might open up a hole in some of those big banks that own a lot of that stuff. Um, so yes, that that could be an issue. Um, it's difficult to know. I mean, something similar happened in um, in Argentina in 2001 and 2002, where the currency was, uh, the peso was pegged to the US dollar for a long period before that, I think more than a decade. And um, the country got into trouble. Uh, there was a debt default. And what they did is they, the government basically closed the banks. So you had very limited ability to take cash out. So you couldn't even get your money back by government order. And then they re-denominated all everyone's um, deposits, in this case, into pesos. So if you had lots of dollars in the bank, it was just overnight, bang, turned into pesos. And then they devalued the peso by about two thirds. So you just lost two thirds of your money. And that was to protect the solvency of the banks because their assets had collapsed, presumably. Um, so yeah, this stuff can happen. That, that would be something that, that I'm worried about. And I'm worried about sovereign risk generally countries with too much debt and they're not going to default technically in the sense that they can always create money to pay you back but they might pay you back with money that's worth an awful lot less than it was before so um we could see some problems there um i was i have to say um pretty disgusted and shocked at what the corporate pension funds have been up to uh, over the that's come out to light over the last couple of weeks uh, Are you surprised? Liabil Liability-driven investment, you know, supposedly cautious and staid corporate pension funds getting involved in derivatives markets and finding themselves subject to what are called margin calls where they have to stump up extra cash very fast. It's pretty disgraceful. They shouldn't be doing that, um, but they were. Um, surprised me. Uh, hopefully uh, there will be action to stop them doing that again. There could be some other people that get in trouble uh, as well around the, around the place. I'm not sure it's going to be the um, the commercial banks. I'm actually a bit worried about the central banks because they've bought all these trillions of dollars of bonds from their governments over the last 10 plus years. And in most cases, as far as I'm aware, governments have provide, it provided indemnities against the central banks. So if the central banks lose money on those purchases, then... Um, the governments will have to pay it back eventually. So, you know, if, you, if Bank of England's put up 
billion dollars, a bit more than that now, because they've just started doing a bit more, a billion pounds, sorry. Um, let's say they lose 20% of that. You could easily get to a number that's $200 billion or close to. And I don't know over what period of time, but you might find the governments have to stump up that money, which means they'll have to go and borrow it. So, uh, you know, that could add a, a potential extra pressure on government finances that are already creaking a bit, quite frankly. Don't worry, the central banks will just buy the bonds to bail themselves out via the government. <laughs> yeah, um, they'll they'll come, print come the money to buy the bonds to bail them out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's such a crazy, circular, insane Madness, world. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's focus quickly again on banks. Companies go bust all the time. In the UK, lots of energy companies have gone bust. In Australia, lots of building companies have gone bust. What makes a bank failure such a... There's just something about it, isn't there, that induces panic? Well, I mean, inducive panic for the simple reason that that's where most people have most of their assets other than perhaps the piece of their house they own and that the bank doesn't own. Uh, you know, if you have a mortgage, the bank effectively owns um, that portion of your house. Um, so it's right at the centre, isn't it, of the whole edifice of the economy. And if the banks stop functioning, well, the, for a start, if, if, if a bank shutters its doors and everyone goes home, um, you know, they can't make any payments. If they all shuttered, there are no payments at all in the economy, pretty much, except for a, a little bit of physical cash that's still out there. Um, so the whole thing grinds to a halt very, very fast. So, it's, so governments and central banks will do anything to keep that going. And it's all about confidence. You know, going back to those old days, if you, if you had deposited your gold coins in somebody's strongbox to keep it safe and you heard that that, that guy was, um, you know, no longer safe, was, was a crook or a, a thief or... or um, you know, he lent some money out and, and he didn't think he was getting a, get it back. You'd be banging on the door pretty pretty fast to go and get back your gold coins. Well, it's the same now. It's just the, the money is in a, in a computer ledger. But there's a much deeper issue here. Like when, when Lehman Brothers went bust, the, the creditors got very, very, very small fraction of their money back. I believe it's like three cents on the dollar or something like that. Whereas if, if a, a company other than a bank goes bust, you'd expect to get significantly more. What makes banks so, so dangerous? Uh, well, well, in that case, yeah. So, so I don't know. I forget uh, how leveraged uh, Lehman Brothers was, but but you know, as I said, a lot of these big banks were typically leveraged fifty times, let's say. So, if your uh, assets are fifty times your equity cushion, your your capital cushion, you only need to lose two percent of the value of your total assets, assuming your liabilities don't move. They do kind of move together. They're hedged. If banks are well run, they're meant to hedge each other, but they don't always get it right. That's the point. Um, so you only need to lose 2% of your assets to wipe out your entire equity capital base. And then you have to sort of be bailed out, raise new capital, all the rest of it, to comply with those regulatory rules that I mentioned earlier. Um, so that's the point. And then, you know, beyond that, you're into negative net assets. Um, and then people sort of, the perception is the bank is then bust. Now, uh, actually, a bank can still function. Uh, and grow its way out of that with its future profits. But the perception is it's bust, and then there's, then, uh, there's a run on it. But uh, yeah, I mean, in, in that case, I suppose Lehman's lost a bit of money on its asset side, um, more, than its, uh, more than its liabilities went down at the same time. And uh, when they shut it up and liquidated all the assets and paid off all the liabilities, all that was left was that, whatever it was, three cents on the dollar, as you said. You, know, you wouldn't expect that much for loss from a business other than a bank, though. Um, which is to, to be honest, to be honest, uh, I'm surprised it was that much. I'm surprised there was anything left. 
Um, well, the- and and in fact, um, a lot of the banks that were bailed out, I thought it was it was pretty disgraceful the way the bailouts happened. Now, Lehman was for whatever reason allowed to fail, uh, like a, almost like a warning to the others. Um, but the others were all bailed out. Um, in my opinion, the way it was done was appalling in that I felt that the shareholders and the uh, people that had lent money, had bought the bonds of those banks, should all have been wiped out to zero before the bailouts happened. They knew the risk they were taking by investing in those organisations. And I don't think it's correct that governments should have bailed out the shareholders. They should have gone to zero. Management should have all been fired, possibly sent to jail in some cases. Um, should not have been given. I know one case where a chief executive got a $100 million golden parachute because it was in his contract and in one of the American investment banks. So his his reward for failure, for destroying his bank, was $100 million. All, in my opinion, utterly immoral the way that was done. Um, I'm not even sure that the governments could do it anymore. They've got so much more debt now. I'm not sure they could borrow that much money that quickly without cr- causing a bond crisis. Again, the central bank will just buy the bonds. Don't worry about it, Rob. It'll be fine. Um, our central yeah, banks and well, governments well, dumb all, all, of the, all of this is saying to me, all of this is saying to me more and more and more, uh, certainly something I recommend, everyone should own some physical gold because you just don't know what which of these is going to go wrong. I, I, I think currency crises are going to be the name of the game over the next few years. Sovereign bond crises as well in supposedly safe developed countries in many cases could be the name of the game, particularly in the Eurozone, if that starts falling apart. Um, I don't actually think the banks themselves are the problem. However, those other problems may cause problems in the banks. So if you um, thought... But, you know, if, if things get extreme if things get extreme enough, of course the banks can still go under, but I just think they're a hell of a lot safer than they were in 2007. So if you thought that a banking crisis like 2008 was bad, just wait till you get a sovereign debt crisis and a currency crisis. Rob Masterand, thanks very much for joining us and everyone at home watching. Thanks for listening.